Welcome to Changing Waters, a new podcast about the ocean, the people who depend on it, and the people who are working to keep it healthy. I'm Brad Warren, co-host of the show with Thane Tinson. This podcast is a production of Global Ocean Health, a program of the National Fisheries Conservation Center. It's distributed by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We didn't get into this podcast by accident. I spent 25 years as a journalist covering fisheries and marine conservation. Along the way, I did a little fishing myself. I come from a family for whom salmon once defined the meaning of life. We'll talk about that more later. Thane Tinson is an attorney with deep experience in fisheries and environmental law. 25 years ago, he worked with me to launch the nonprofit National Fisheries Conservation Center a think tank that focuses on the gnarliest problems in marine resource management. Our biggest program focuses on the marine consequences of carbon pollution. Those consequences are starting to unravel the ocean's ability to keep making dinner. There are more than 3 billion people around the world who depend on the ocean for food. They are among the first to suffer when climate change and ocean acidification wipe out their food source, but very few of them know it. That's why we were thrilled to get the chance to launch this podcast with a truly rare voice from someone who is both wise and world famous. Mary Robinson is former president of Ireland and a renowned world leader in climate policy. She talks with our correspondent, Kamora King, about her new book, Climate Justice. My guest today is Mary Robinson a self-proclaimed climate justice activist who seeks to put justice and equity into the heart of climate change initiatives. Many of you may know her as the first woman to serve as president of Ireland. She has also held a string of other titles, including barrister, professor, United Nations High Commissioner of Human Rights, and UN Special Envoy on Climate Change. She is currently chair of the Elders, a group of global leaders founded by Nelson Mandela to tackle challenges of leadership, peace, and injustice in a changing world. She's the founder of the Mary Robinson Foundation, Climate Justice, a center dedicated to the most vulnerable and forgotten people affected by climate change. Lastly, Mary Robinson is an author and most recently host of the podcast Women of Invention, but today we are here to discuss her recent book, Climate Justice, Hope, Resilience, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future. In her book, Mary characterizes herself as a latecomer to the climate change movement. She connected to it on a personal level when she found herself holding her first grandson in her arms back in 2003. Thinking about what life would be like for him in 2050 made her realize her lifelong fight to promote human rights was intrinsically intertwined with the threat of climate change. She shares the stories of 11 climate witnesses around the world and how they decided to make a difference and address the injustices and threats their communities are experiencing due to climate change. Throughout the book, Mary expertly weaves the science behind climate change into her storytelling. She also frames the threat of climate change as a human rights issue, reiterating the theme that those who are least responsible for it are the most affected. Mary Robinson, welcome and thank you for taking the time to have this discussion with me today. To start, what does climate justice mean to you and why is it important that we bring human rights into the conversation about the future of coastal communities and people who depend on healthy oceans. Climate justice links human rights development and climate change. And 
ensures that we have a very people-centered approach, that we take into account, yes, we have to talk about ecosystems, we have to talk about uh, a holistic approach to the whole of the way that climate is affecting our systems. But at the center of it, we have to care about people. And therefore, we have to understand the injustice of climate change, that it affects disproportionately poor people and poor communities. And they're not responsible. They're not the ones who drive cars, who do big manufacturing, who have central heating, etc. And yet they feel um, very strongly the uh, dislocations, the disruptions of climate change. And they don't understand it a lot of the time. They don't know what's happening. And of course, those in coastal communities tend to be one of the most vulnerable communities because they're vulnerable for sea level rise, for acidification of the oceans, all kinds of things. I'd like you to talk about how justice concerns affect the design of climate policy. We know the poor suffer disproportionately from climate change impacts everywhere, even in the richest countries, and they are starting to speak out. One common theme is that they want money from carbon pricing to be spent at home, not spent buying offsets from other places. But even here in the U.S., the depth of future climate disruptions depends heavily on the greening economies in developing nations, which will account for most of the world's economic growth. In that light, what do you say when people who are concerned about climate justice at home in wealthy countries seek to lock up carbon revenues and forbid investments outside their own borders? I think we need the whole range of measures that we can talk about. We do need to put a price on carbon. We do need to... Uh, um, you know, have a, a smaller carbon footprint and therefore have more home-based food, home-based products um, intelligently. We need to reorder um, how we do globalization. Um, obviously, um, we need to reduce um, our consumption, reduce our air travel, reduce um, the... Without, I believe particularly losing any quality of life in that. In the U.S., people who live in rural resource-dependent areas are among the most vulnerable to climate change. They are already enduring increasing floods, droughts, wildfires, and lost harvests of crops and seafood. Many rural people are also struggling, and at the same time, they fear that carbon policies could unfairly burden them by raising their fuel prices. But climate policy advocates often say more transit and electric vehicles are the answer. In rural areas, you can't haul crops or timber or even fish to market with a bus pass. And these folks can't even really afford an electric truck, nor the needed infrastructure with it. So they worry that they'll get stuck with a bill that benefits people in big cities. And in the U.S., rural districts have an enormous political influence, so they often just block climate policies. So how can climate policies be shaped to help rural resource-dependent people become the solution? I think that's a very important question. If we're going to succeed, as we must, in moving rapidly to a cleaner, safer, healthier world, it must be affordable for those on low incomes, those who are dependent on um, you know, social security, etc. Um, that's absolutely key. And we've seen the mistakes that were made. The mistake, for example, in France of President Macron, who's doing the right thing um, in one sense, of putting up the fuel price, but he's doing it the wrong way. And he's doing it in the context of having abolished a wealth tax. So he's seen as a president for the rich. And perceptions are very important in taking policy changes. Um, so any increase in a carbon tax must go back to the very people 
who have to pay that increase with immediate compensation benefits to them. And it's, it's very doable. You know, dividends, various ways of ensuring that they do not suffer at all from the increase in carbon price or the, there should be much more incentives to move to electric vehicles, uh, whether it's cab drivers, whether it's truck drivers, whether it's those transporting fish, whatever, um, then there should be real incentives because we have to move things. What we have at the moment is bad subsidies on fossil fuel. They should all go and we should be uh, incentivizing moving rapidly to clean energy and making it affordable and not having it something that uh, people fear because it's going to cost. So how do you think we can achieve the deep emission reductions needed to limit warming within two degrees Celsius without creating this further injustice for the poor, especially in rural communities? I mean, it's no secret we are in a crunch for time. We're currently at a one degrees warming already. Yes, and it's not two degrees we should be at. We have to stay at 1.5 degrees. That's the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on, of Climate Scientists. And that's an even starker um, idea. And it means we need to get out of business as usual as our approach into what I call a moonshot approach. Remember when John F. Kennedy uh, called on the American people that we must put a man on the moon in eight years. That was absolutely impossible when he announced it. Impossible. How could it possibly be done? But it was done in eight years. And the average age in NASA at the time was 26. So the average age of those who heard him was probably 18. Um, so I, I think young people with that sense of innovation and drive, they can get us. The, the, the scientists issued the recent stark warning that it's not two degrees we have to be at. It's 1.5 degrees of Celsius of warming. Uh, said it is doable. It's all about political will. It's all about generating pressure for much, much more ambition. And then it's doable. And most business leaders who are not fossil fuel that I talk to, serious business leaders, believe it's doable if the governments would only wake up and, you know, change the incentives, get out of fossil fuel, get out of subsidies for fossil fuel, give incentives to move towards clean energy and do it rapidly. So many people in fishing communities are experiencing major environmental changes, but they don't see the connection to climate change. They don't identify as victims of anything, and they are not part of discussions about climate justice. They are hardworking, conservative people just trying to keep their livelihood intact. How can we approach that divide and bring community, community members to the table without pushing our ideals and notions of justice on them? I have a great empathy with coastal communities. When I was being put forward as a possible candidate, it wasn't fully confirmed yet, for presidency of Ireland, I went to a meeting um, in the south of Ireland in a small coastal community, um, um, Alahees, uh, where they had brought together the coastal communities from the whole west coast of Ireland. And it was a great community event. And they believe they launched my campaign. Actually, it wasn't a formal launch, but it might as well have been. There was such a sense of, um, I don't know, um, uh, you know, listening to people, listening to their concerns, and um, having a, a sense of supporting um, the way in which they want to see the future. 
And uh, it certainly helped me in my campaign, that meeting in Alahis that I went to. And so, you know, I have an, a sense of empathy with coastal communities here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, staunch, wonderful people who, um, you know, are, are good neighbors who help their community. They should now know much more about climate change. I'm sure they're perceiving the changes. It may not have been talked about in terms of climate change, but the more that can be discussed now, the better. You know, it, this shouldn't be an issue that they don't discuss. They absolutely should discuss it. And they should have good ideas about it, about what they want to see as the approach, because they are most at risk, because, precisely because they are coastal communities, because they live, um, uh, you know, from the sea. And the sea is becoming itself warming um, and um, acidified and in danger. And fish are in danger because of warming. And all of this is something that they should absolutely try to, you know, be part of the discussion and indeed be voices that are listened to in the discussion. So you approach climate change as people-centered and communicate its threat through storytelling. How would you apply this pro approach to help coastal ocean-dependent people come to grips with climate change? Because I think for a lot of them, this is they're perceiving these, they see these effects, but it still seems like such a, oh, it's not our problem type of issue. Yes, I do believe that it's important to tell stories now because stories create empathy. Um, it's a great way to get people to make it personal. And I believe that we all have to make this issue personal now, including those living in coastal communities. They have to, uh, you know, see that, we're not heading for a safe world for their children and grandchildren. For coastal communities, that's very important for any community. I'm a grandmother myself. I have six grandchildren. I think about this a lot. So um, it's really important that there is an awareness and a listening to communities and that the communities uh, begin to uh, see and be part of the solutions that they need. Um, I know in various parts of the world, one of the stories in my book on climate justice is about Patricia Cochran, who's a scientist in Alaska, and she's watching the, the coastal communities there um, and their way of life being completely eroded. And the villages are going to have to move from being on the coastline to higher up, and the cost of that and the worry about that. But at least, you know, her voice is heard through the book and people have an empathy with the situation. And this is in the United States, and it's not the only coastal community in the United States um, that you know is worried and and at risk. But um, I, you know there needs to be that awareness. Yes, I, I really enjoyed that story. Um, I had no idea that was actually happening in Alaska, so uh, it was great to learn that. Um, well, also terrible, but <laughs> she's a wonderful woman, Patricia Cochran. Great woman. Seems like it. And um, so you've spoken about climate change as a test of solidarity, but we are also living in a time of increased social isolation, so much so that one in two Americans report feeling lonely. Uh, there's less trust among people, never mind trust in the big institutions that are needed to grapple with a problem on this scale. You share an amazing story about an overlooked low-income community in Mississippi coming together after Hurricane Katrina to fight for its rights. But in the absence of a driving force such as a large natural or man-made disaster, how can we you know, galvanize uh, coastal communities to build trust and solidarity in one another to address the so-called boogeyman under the bed? I think we have to 
uh, believe in and build on the two frameworks that countries of the world um, forged together in 2015. 193 countries, including the United States, came together in September 2015 to have the 2030 agenda with the 17 sustainable development goals, one of which is about oceans. And uh, in December, we had the Paris Climate Agreement. Those are still valid for the world. It's true that the Trump administration is giving bad example, trying to pull out of the Paris Agreement, not referencing the 2030 agenda. But that's a temporary, that's a government of the moment. An awful lot of people in the United States still believe in the Paris Climate Agreement and in the Sustainable Development Goals and are working for them. And I think that's what's important, that we continue to work with these frameworks. They are the frameworks of solidarity. They're there, they're agreed, and we just need to implement them. We're in a bumpy time, a time of populism, a time of uh, identity politics, um, uh, so-called sovereignty, America first, other countries first. That will not be enough. That, that we can't solve our problems that way. And we have to recognize that. So uh, I think it's, it's really important that we, uh, that we know that we have these agreed frameworks. They haven't disappeared. We just have to uh, believe in them and, and implement them and implement them at all levels, including at the local level. Reading your book and listening to your podcast has left me personally inspired by the individuals you introduce. They're often everyday people, a hairdresser from Mississippi, a Ugandan farmer, a mother working in cosmetics, all individuals who have witnessed the adverse effects of climate change and decided to create their own climate solutions. How can people depend on healthy oceans and fisheries follow that example? I think they're the very people who are in the front line of uh, this story <laughs> uh, and have to be part of the story and have to be listened to and, uh, you know, feel that um, uh, they are, you know, able to be proactive. Um, I, I learned a very important lesson from Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, I was on a panel with him in New York some years ago, and we were um, in front of a group of uh, a large audience of young people on their iPhones and their tablets, uh, tweeting. Really. So there was big social media um, connection, and there was a journalist moderating, and she was sort of watching Archbishop Tutu being so expressive in front of these young people, and she said to him, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? And he said, oh, no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And that, to me, is key. Coastal communities must have hope in their future. They must believe that they will be able to come through this. And they must be, you know, listen to how it is going to be possible. And I'm afraid some coastal communities are going to have to move. That's the truth in Alaska. It's the truth elsewhere. But they must be on top of measures that need to be taken to ensure their future. And they must have voices that um, show their concern and their um, closeness to nature, their closeness to water, to, to the oceans, uh, and uh, that uh, you know they, they have a kind of much more of a sense of nature than many other people. And that's really important because in cities and in our consumer society, we've lost a close connection with nature, but coastal communities haven't. They have that strength of, you know, understanding that unless we work well with the ecosystems that sustain us, 
they will no longer sustain us. And that's really where we're heading if we're not going to um, take the right steps. So we have to be prisoners of hope and work very hard um, over the next few years to um, have the transformative change we need. Yeah, I just, uh, in the words of uh, Dr. David Orr, I heard this uh, quote called, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And I think that's uh, very fitting for this. That's very nice. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I enjoyed it. Um, okay, so I really enjoyed the story you included about Ken Smith, a coal miner from Canada. You paid homage to the fact that fossil fuel workers are not bad people and are often wrongly villainized. If part of climate justice is the effort to leave no one behind and have this just transition, uh, I believe that many fishermen can relate to this. Is Are you seeing any actions globally to help fishermen adapt or transition to secure jobs without having to uproot their way of life? Well, first of all, I do believe that the just transition is absolutely key to being able to have a safe world. So that means resources. That means putting money into people's lives and how those lives will transform. So whether it's um, a coal miner or a gas worker or um, the miner in New Brunswick in Canada, uh, Jim King, whom I wrote about, or um, coastal communities, and they need to be supported in having um, uh, 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 options for alternative futures if the future that they have at the moment is not viable. Um, and uh, that is absolutely crucial. In the past, communities have been abandoned um, and uh, bereft when, you know, whatever their activity of fishing was not able to continue. Um, and I think we need conservation of fishing stock and conservation of, um, you know, of fisheries generally and of the oceans, um, you know, conser- conserving um, zones of the oceans, which I know, um, I'm not an expert on this, but I know that that is very much um, a concern. And we need to listen to people who uh, understand uh, their way of life and how to make that sustainable. And I hope that the voices of coastal communities will be heard and will be respected and will, and that people will be treated with the dignity and worth that they deserve. In the U.S., there's a lot of discussion about climate denial. It, is, it has proved to be so persistent and resistant, maybe because it is a coping mechanism for people who cannot see any workable solutions being offered. Can you talk about any examples where people are bridging this gap? For example, by helping communities come out of denial by building solutions they can live with? Yes, I think it's important that people do feel that they're included in the discussion, that this is also something that will help them, that uh, they're not marginalized or forgotten or demonized, as in some you know, conversations, um, uh, workers in uh, fossil fuel can feel demonized, and they shouldn't. But... I also feel sorry for the uh, the big guys, and I'm talking, you know, political big guys, and you know who I'm talking about, who claim to be climate deniers. I feel sorry for them because I don't even believe that they're climate deniers. They're just benefiting from um, making money out of fossil fuel in the short term and to hell with the longer term viability of our planet. 
and I just feel sorry for them because if I didn't feel sorry for them, I might feel very, very angry. So we were talking about hope a little earlier. And in your book, you show moments of despair in the fight to create a comprehensive international climate change agreement. You, as mentioned before, you talked about Trump and his decision to pull out of the Paris Agreement. But overall, you remain a positive voice. And how, even through that despair, just how do you keep going? No, I, I don't despair. I, I never despair. Okay. So, <laughs> so always hope. So how, how do you manage that? Yeah. I mean, I, am, I, I try to see things as they are. I mean, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't pretend things are better than they are. So I'm, I'm realistic, but I don't despair. <laughs> um, that, that word would not be part of my vocabulary at all. Okay. Um, but I, yeah, but I, I, I do, you know, I think I see the sense of your, of your question. I, I think it's important that we recognize that the Paris Agreement was a very important agreement. It was a very fair agreement, but it's also a weak agreement. And there are weak measures to implement it. So we have to go beyond it and you know, work for three things. Um, and I say this a lot to audiences now. Climate change is such an important issue that every single person in the world must take it personally now, must know about it and take it personally and do something in their lives that shows that they have understood. Um, in my case, it's giving up meat. Um, I understand that, you know, um, that's something I can do. I'm now a pescatarian. Um, I love meat, but I'm giving it up because that's important. And then having done that, having done something, get angry with government for not understanding that they must take their responsibility and put pressure on governments with a vote, with a march, with whatever it takes, children coming out of school, whatever it takes. And then thirdly, we must imagine that world we're working towards and that we want, which is a world of clean energy, which will be healthier, which will be um, uh, electric vehicles, uh, which will be safer, which will be largely not personal cars, but um, uh, mobile buses, basically, uh, that are electric, because we'll, we'll, we'll do it collectively. Um, not to waste energy, and we'll live our lives with less consumption, but I hope more happiness and certainly more equality, not the terrible inequality we have at the moment. And we need young people to talk more about this world and about the possibilities of getting clean energy to the billion people in our world who don't have any electricity at the moment and live in stark poverty. That's unfair, that's unjust, and they're the very ones that are most affected by climate change. I know you've been touring parts of the U.S. promoting your book this past month and are planning on returning in the late spring. If you are not already this spring, would you consider coming to Washington State in the future to speak to audiences about <laughs> your book and the issues you've raised? Well, I have been to Washington State and I've seen, uh, you know, some years ago, a lot of very uh, good progressive thinking um, in Seattle and elsewhere, you know, so, uh, uh, you know... <laughs> I don't go unless I'm invited, but, um, you know, and I, I, I can only do a certain amount and I'm very conscious of my own carbon footprint. Um, so I, you know, sometimes I try to send my voice instead of going, you know, with a video rather than traveling and um, incurring the carbon um, impact and footprint. Um, so I have to be careful about that. But um, uh, I am very on mission. I'm very committed and I'm very committed to talking, particularly in universities, because I believe they have to be um, 
you know, leaders in sustainability and leaders in sustainability about coastal communities, about oceans, about uh, ecosystems of our world, about uh, the coral reefs, about everything that we need to care about. Yes, I agree. Well, Mary Robinson, thank you for your time. It was truly a pleasure. Not at all. And good questions. A big thank you to Mary Robinson and Kamora King, who conducted that interview. Kamora is a graduate student at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies. If you like what you heard here today, please come on back. Coming up in our next edition, we'll highlight some of the people who have made their life on the water into poetry. Every year, in late February, there is an event in Astoria, Oregon, called the Fisher Poets Gathering. It's one of the highlights of the year for thousands of fishermen. They come from all over the West Coast in Alaska, and even from the East Coast. We'll try to give you a glimpse of the big-hearted, hard-working people who make it that way. <laughs>